This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Friday the 22nd of January. So the vaccines are coming, as we keep saying and we keep hearing, but one of the big discussion points this week is who should get it first? So we've talked about this before. We've talked about high-risk groups like elderly people because they're at high risk of severe disease being at the front of the queue and healthcare workers because they have a higher likelihood of both catching it and also spreading it. They're obvious ones, but there's been arguments that teachers should be given priority treatment and supermarket workers because they are frontline workers. And maybe we should also consider giving it to people who work in quarantine hotels or transport because they've been spreaders in the past. But when we have a limited supply of the vaccine straight up, Norman, who should be at the front of that queue? It's hard to argue with the uh, priorities that the federal government's put out. And in fact, hotel quarantine workers, border workers, People dealing with people coming from overseas like drivers, they are actually at the front of the queue and they need to be because they're our first line of defence and they're also the most vulnerable. So they need to be protected. And if the vaccines do prevent transmission, they will also be a ring of defence so that they will kind of, if they do get infected, they will resist infection and not spread it into the community. So they are very much early recipients of the vaccine. It'll be the Pfizer vaccine. Healthcare workers are hard to argue with, particularly in aged care, as are frail elderly in aged care, because they are extremely vulnerable to serious illness. So again, it's hard to argue with that. You've really got to go for care and protection and saving lives and saving severe disease as your first priority, and also, if possible, preventing transmission into the community. And remember, aged care has been a transmission point as well once it gets into aged care, and they've been focuses of clusters. So then the debate is a perfectly reasonable one. People who are dealing with, say, young kids, teachers, and others at the front line, such as supermarket workers, you can argue that too on the basis of protection. Now, there is another argument here. Once you've covered the people who are most vulnerable, whether in fact by then you'll know more about reduced transmission and whether you should switch tack. Because in fact, if you really want to reduce transmission in the community, you need to immunise people who are at most risk of infection. And those are not the elderly. The people who are at risk of infection are the younger people in the community. Because they're more mobile. They're more mobile. uh, They're out there. They're socially mixing. And so you'd head off for people aged over 18 and under 65. And they might become your higher priority because if they are protected from infection, they will then protect other people. And that's true herd immunity. And then you nibble away at that. So that would require a bit of a radical change in approach and an assumption that you're reducing transmission. But but there should be more information coming in from the tens of millions of people who've now been immunised overseas. There's already some evidence from Israel of reduced transmission. But again, in Israel, they haven't yet moved into those age groups, so you can't really tell. But by the time we get there, we might be in a position to say, let's pivot and we'll actually go really go hell for leather for younger people. So we know that in Australia, we're getting two different types of vaccine. We're getting a smaller supply of the Pfizer shot and then a lot of the Oxford AstraZeneca shot, which has been a source of 
debate in Australia because there's different efficacy between those two vaccines. And we've actually had a question about that from one of our Israeli coronacasters, Gary, who lives on a kibbutz. And Gary makes the point, in agriculture, when we give a treatment against pests or disease, a good farmer does not repeat the same treatment twice in the same season. You should use different products, different methods to attack the same disease or pest. And he's wondering whether the same would bear out with a vaccine. Well, if we move away from, uh, you know, the mango and avocado plantations on an Israeli kibbutz towards vaccines, the reality with the vaccines is that almost all, if not all at this stage, have been designed based on the Wuhan version of the coronavirus from almost a year ago. So it's a good question, but the reality is that changing vaccines is not going to change the target. The target is the spike protein from the Wuhan virus. It may be as time goes on, and particularly with the worry about the South African variant of the virus, that you might be getting what's called antigenic escape or antibody escape, and you might need to redesign the vaccine with a new spike protein, in which case probably the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are going to be most flexible to do that, and they say they can do that within six weeks. So it's not, a much, it's not so much about varying the vaccine technology because the vaccines are all targeting the same part of the virus. So Norman, we've received some really lovely feedback that I'd love to share with you and our audience. So back on October 26th, we had someone write in and say they live in Melbourne and they hadn't left their home since July and they were feeling very, very anxious and agoraphobic and just so traumatized they couldn't even contemplate going out and they were really feeling trapped. But this person has written back to us and said, I just want to thank you for addressing my question and to let you know that I'm a lot better. I did go out into the world. I've gradually been able to extend how long I can wear a mask from not at all to almost an hour. And their most important discovery was when they felt suffocated, they found that breathing hard with force proved to themselves that they weren't suffocating. I guess everyone needs to find out what works for them. What a great response and feedback. And I think, I don't think we said very much except for, the person to seek help. It was just quite clear this person was extremely distressed, had a high level of psychological distress. And when I talk about psychological distress, I'm really talking about depression and anxiety. But this was anxiety, anxiety about going out. And you really do need to get help. It's just hard to do all this stuff by yourself when it's really affecting your life. So it's fantastic that um, this uh, coronacaster does sounds have got help and also helped him or herself. And hopefully their experience has been helpful to other people because I'm sure that they weren't the only one. And even though the Melbourne lockdown, which was so long and so hard, was some time ago now, we've still had lockdowns coming in and out of effect all over Australia. And um, I'm sure there's many people who are dealing with similar things. Yeah. And if people have got a high level of anxiety, even if they're not in the state where there's a bit of a lockdown, they can, they can be re-traumatised by that and the anxiety comes back. It, it is important to seek help. There actually are some very good online psychotherapy programmes to help anxiety. And I think Beyond Blue's got a note of those to help you. And I think the federal government as well has had a look at those online psychotherapy programs so that you can choose a, a reliable one rather than going into the internet in rand at random. Well, yesterday we put out the call for quick fire Friday questions and boy, did you deliver people. We've got heaps to get through today. Norman, are you ready to go? Deep breath. Let's go. Barbara says, how can a person demonstrate that they have received the vaccination, which you might be might be required to do sometime down the track? Well, you can ask your doctor to put it in your um, My Health record. 
Um, it's in it's in the Australian immunise it will be in the Australian immunisation registry. New South Wales is talking about putting it into the service New South Wales app so that you can show just like a QR code when you go into a place that you have been actually immunised. It shouldn't be too hard to do if you're willing to let other people know about it. Paul's asking if COVID is detected in the sewerage water of a particular area, why aren't the authorities insisting on all residents in that area being tested, like make it compulsory to get a test? There's two things here. One is I think you've got to be careful about what you make compulsory and what not. Making masks compulsory, mandated, is an easy thing to ask people to do. But to come forward to be tested and really force that is just difficult, as well as the fact that you're asking people who don't have any symptoms at all to come forward. And we haven't really had a policy so far of high-density asymptomatic testing. Really, the asymptomatic testing that we're doing is, in fact, the sewage. And then we ask people with symptoms to come forward. Matthew's saying, is anyone anywhere making a coronavirus vaccine that targets something other than the spike protein? If the spike protein is the part that does infectiousness of the virus and is going to be changed in new variants would we be better off targeting different parts of the virus particle? Well, that's what the Chinese have done in one of their vaccines. So what they've got in their vaccine is pretty much the same as the flu vaccine. So they've killed the whole virus and basically give you dead virus in the vaccine. I mean, it sounds rather macabre, but in fact, that's what happens with influenza immunisation. It's a killed vaccine. The early data from the Chinese vaccine, even though they've not had a great randomised trial, is that it's about 70 to 80% effective. So it's not far off the Astra vaccine. So it, it seems to be less targeted. One last question from Seema. Since it's likely that I'll be getting the Astra vaccine, can I opt for a half dose to improve effectiveness? Well, you can ask your doctor um, whether he or she is willing to do that. It depends on what the Therapeutic Goods Administration approves for this vaccine. So at the time of recording this coronacast, it has yet to approve the Astra vaccine, and we won't know what the dosage that they're approving consists of. So it's possible they could approve a half dose followed by a full dose, although that would be on limited data. So let's just wait and see what the TGA suggests. I would have thought that in a vaccination, a high-throughput vaccination clinic, you probably can't. They'll just give you what's on offer from the TGA. If you're getting it done privately through your general practitioner, if that's possible, then you might be able to negotiate that with your GP, but they would be doing that off-label. And not that I'm a GP, but if I was the doctor, I would be asking you to sign a consent form to say that that's what you want and that's what I'll give you. But um, you can't expect them to say yes when they're ruled and expose themselves to legal risk. Dust your hands off, Norman. That's another Quick Fire Friday done and dusted and another week done and dusted for Coronacast. It is. So if you want to ask a question, go to abc.net.au slash coronacast, click on Ask a Question and mention Coronacast on the way through. Still getting swamped by lots of questions. Keep them coming in. We love getting swamped. And we'll see you on Monday. See you then. See you then.